What's the biggest responsibility you've ever been given? Uh, I have a lot that I could pick out, you know, uh, my family, my responsibilities as an elder and pastor. Uh, but one that stands out from over the years was organising a communion service. I know that sounds a little bit uh, bizarre, uh, but I was 15 at the time, and uh, it was a conference of over 300 people. And uh, I'd never even been to the conference before, and I got grabbed on the Sunday morning uh, by someone and asked to organise it. I think I was really hoodwinked into it. And uh, I was basically told that this is really important, you need to get it right, um, off you go. And I was sort of, Where, where's the bread? Well, I, I didn't know anything. It was only a mini disaster, <laughs> it wasn't a total disaster. Um, we forgot the, the thing to sort of wipe the cup. Uh, so it wasn't too bad. But uh, it was a big charge, really, for uh, a small uh, small 15-year-old who'd never even been uh, there before. But it's nothing compared to the big charge that we have here. Paul speaks of uh, Timothy and what he's to do in the biggest terms, building on all that he said in the letter, all that he said about God in the gospel. He now charges Timothy with something huge. Have a look again at verse 1. I charge you in the presence of God... And of Christ Jesus, who is judge of the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. You see here, it's almost the highest terms possible. He puts him in the presence of God. He reminds him that he is the judge. He is the one who is going to look at his work. He's going to look at his life. He charges him by the very appearing and kingdom of Christ. What is he to do? What's this big charge? We're told there, aren't we, in verse 2. Preach the word. That's our first point. Preach the word. That's what Timothy is to do in the light of all that Paul has said. If Timothy is going to guard the gospel, if Timothy is going to carry on the work that Paul has done, then his biggest task above all is to preach the word. Preach the word, Timothy says, in season... That is when people are thronging to hear, when all things are going well, when people are being saved, when it's uh, all easy and things seem like they're growing. Preach the gospel. Preach the word. Preach the truth when things are going well in season. And the not so easy job. Preach the word, Timothy, out of season. When people don't seem to be listening. When things aren't going well. When you've got a million and one other things to do. When people don't seem to be being saved, when growth seems slow, preach the word. Keep preaching the word. That's going to be a hard job, isn't it, to do it in season and out of season. But if that weren't hard enough, he tells him, preach the word, Timothy, reprove. Now, as I said yesterday, this this is the word we had yesterday. It's translated elsewhere as tell them their fault or convict If the job of preaching out of season were hard enough, Timothy has to tell people that they're wrong. And as we preach the word faithfully, that will happen, won't it? Why? Well, because we found out yesterday, that's one of the things that the word is for. So if we preach the word faithfully, that's what it will do. So it's not like Paul is asking Timothy to do something separate from preach the word. He's not saying preach the word and do this. He's saying as you preach the word do this. So we should expect, shouldn't we, that as we hear preaching, as we read the word, 
we should be convicted by what we read. We should find that sometimes we're in the wrong. If you're never convicted that you're wrong by something in the word, then you're either not understanding it or you're Jesus. Now, I know Jesus is present with us as we gather together. But other than that, I don't think we have Jesus with us. So which is it? We shouldn't be surprised that part of preaching and teaching means that we're going to clash with pre-held beliefs, both our own and also the people that we're talking to and, and speaking to. That's why we have to do it with patience and kindness. So we do need to say that people are wrong. We don't do it in a nasty way. We don't do it in a shouty way. But that's part of what Timothy is to do, is to reprove. And then it seems to almost get even worse in a way. Preach the word, Timothy. Rebuke. Now that's not a word from yesterday. That wasn't one of the words that came up in uh, the passage. It's a different word. John Stott says that whereas reprove has mainly to do with the intellect, so what you believe, this word has more to do with the moral sphere. So he's to tell people that they are sinning. So it's not just to convict them of wrong beliefs, that they're in the wrong, but he's also to tell them that they are sinning. And more than that, pull them up on it. Now in our culture, rebuking people has almost become a sin in itself, hasn't it? You can't tell people that their actions are wrong. Partly because our culture teaches that there is no right and wrong. And if there is right and wrong, then it's self-determined. You get to decide what it is. So almost the greatest sin in our culture is not to be true to yourself or to try and stop somebody else being so. So let's be clear on here what it's not saying. He's not saying be nasty or vindictive. He's not saying be self-righteous or nitpicky. But he is saying that if you love people, you will want the best for them. So I, I tell my kids off, I won't give you any specifics. I rebuke my children. I tell them that they're doing things that are wrong. Is that because I'm better than them? No. Is it because I hate them? No. Is it because I love them? Yes. In fact, if I didn't love them, if I didn't care for them, I'd probably just let them get on and do what they liked. Leave it to someone else to do. Part of the problem is that most of us have never experienced this being done well, have we? We've seen it done badly. I know I have (laughs) over the years. It puts us off the idea altogether. But what it really is about is loving each other enough to the point where actually we care about them enough to do this. This is not coming down like a ton of bricks on someone because it's not about destroying the person. It's about loving and helping the person. Remember, the spirit that we've been given is a spirit of power and love and of self-discipline. And that should uh, affect all our ministry, shouldn't it, as we do it? So it's done as we preach and teach the word. And that makes sense, doesn't it? The word tells us what is right and what is wrong. If we stray too far from what the word says, then we'll end up in a pickle, won't we? And start just preaching what we think is right and wrong and ended up falling into the same trap that they are. But it doesn't just mean just shout Bible verses at people. I've seen that over the years as well. You've got this particular sin, I'll just quote a Bible verse at you. It's actually caring enough to speak. It's caring enough to be involved in someone's life to stop them going down a destructive path in their life. 
Now, is this one just for the church? I've thought a lot about this while I've been preparing, and I think my conclusion is that no, it's not just for within the church. But I think the way it expresses itself in the church and outside the church is different. Different contexts will mean different ways and different things that we will do. So, for example, when we call non-believers to repent and believe, we're implicitly rebuking them, aren't we? That's one of the reasons why it's so hard to say repent, isn't it? We're calling them from a life of sin to a life of faith. But we don't call them to repent without calling them to faith in Christ. What I mean is that change in action comes from change in direction. So we don't go around telling non-believers to book their ideas up and stop sinning. That's not what this means. What we tell them is to turn to Christ. We're not in the business of telling unbelievers merely how to sin less. We want them to turn to Christ for salvation. So we won't be shouting at them on street corners. I've, I've been shouted at, even people not knowing I'm a believer. We won't be shunning our non-Christian friends and family. Remember in chapter 3, it was professing believers who lived in immorality that Timothy was to avoid, not unbelievers. So please don't take this as a license to go and have a go at your non-Christian friends. It isn't. <coughs> but when we're talking to believers, it's a bit different though. What we're doing is calling them to a standard they already hold. And in that sense, it should be easier, shouldn't it? It doesn't always feel like it. But it's part of loving and caring for that person. And it's part of Timothy preaching the word. It will mean rebuking people. Preach the word, Timothy, he says. Exhort. Now, if the first word was intellectual, the second word was moral, well, this is more the emotional side. It's variously translated. We had a different uh, thing, didn't we? Encourage. It can be exhort, comfort, counsel. It's the word related to paraclete. Uh, which we're told the Holy Spirit will be to us, our counselor, our comforter, our encourager. It literally means to call alongside. It's the idea of encouraging. It's what the coach or the fellow athlete does alongside someone who's running. As I said before, it's not bashing them over their heads, but doing what it takes to keep <coughs> them going. Life as a Christian is hard, isn't it? In lots of ways. And we need encouragement. We need exhortation, we need comfort and counsel to keep going. And if two of us help one another go in the right direction, sorry, if of these three words this is any of it, it's one to keep us in the right direction. Sorry, get me right. The other two words are to get us in the right direction. Yeah. Going in the right way, believing the right things. This is the thing to keep us running. In the right direction. There we go. And we need all three if we're honest, don't we? We so often get wrong ideas about God and need reproving. We so often fall into sin that hurts us and hurts others and need rebuking. And I think if we're honest, we so often feel like giving up the race. That we need encouraging, we need exhorting. So we need each other's help to do that. That's what Timothy used to do, to preach to others these things. So those who help us in this way aren't being self-righteous, or at least they shouldn't be. Hopefully they're being loving. They're doing what God has told us to do. We're told to do these things to one another. 
But Timothy are not just told what to do, and ourselves are not just told what to do, but how and why. How? And we're to do it, you see, with patience and teaching. That's there at the end of verse 2. It's going to take patience as we uh, exhort, as we rebuke, as we reprove. We're all works in progress, aren't we? We all make mistakes. We all let each other down. And we also all tend to justify our own actions and get defensive very quickly. I know I do. But if we're going to change, if we're going to grow, it will take time. It will probably take us hearing the same thing over and over and over again. So as we seek to be agents of change in each other, it's going to be taking a lot of patience. It's unlikely that our wrong ideas or our wrong actions or our lethargy will stop after just one conversation or one sermon. Wouldn't it be brilliant if they they did, but they don't. Changing people, growth, takes time. And that means that as we minister to one another, as we preach the word to one another, we need to be patient with each other. Because all of us take time to change. The same is true of our non-believing friends as well. Research research shows that on an average, a new believer will have heard the gospel 30 times before they believe. (coughs) And the average, apparently, this is for the UK by the way, in America it's seven times. Because I think they're a bit more familiar with with things. But in the UK it's about 30 times. Uh, The average time between hearing the gospel for the first time and actually putting their trust in Jesus is five years between hearing it for the first time and then actually doing That's average. So some who do that quicker, but there'll be some who will be much, much longer. It takes patience to keep going, to keep preaching the word, to keep preaching the gospel. On average, as we just said, they'll say no to the gospel 29 times before they say yes. That's on average. No idea what it was like in Timothy's day, but preaching the word takes patience. So we do it with patience, and we do it with teaching. We preach by teaching. We're told to do it with complete, uh, complete patience and teaching. Preaching and teaching are not two neat separate things that we do. We teach as we preach, and we preach as we teach. Uh, sometimes you get the idea that you can completely separate them, but the Bible actually sort of puts them overlapping quite a lot. The New Living Translation translates this passage this way. Patiently correct, rebuke and encourage your people with good teaching. I think that gets the idea across. That actually we do these things, we preach the word by teaching the word as well. It's not just standing there and proclaiming in a way, it's actually getting into the text as well, into the doctrine, into the truth. So we do all these things, we uh, exhort, we uh, rebuke, we reprove by teaching the word. So get taught and get teaching. Why is he charging Timothy in this way though? To preach the word patiently, doing all that we've just said. Why? But he tells him straight, doesn't he? Verse 3. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. Why are you to preach the word patiently? Well, because people won't want to hear your message. I'm charging you this, Timothy, because it will be tempting to give up. People will go searching after teachers who only tell them what their itching ears want to hear. 
They'll go after teachers and churches who won't reprove them, who won't rebuke them, who'll preach a more palatable, politically correct message. Teachers who are more in touch with the spirit of the age. We know what that looks like a little bit uh, today, don't we? A touchy-feely God for a touchy-feely age. No mention of sin or judgment. No mention of wrath or hell. Not that we want to go to the other extreme and only talk about these things. But there are things that we need to say to people that they don't want to hear. So this isn't an easy task that we're given. It will be tempting as we talk to our friends, as we talk to each other, as we preach, if we do that from the front. It will be tempting to downplay these things. It will be tempting to change the gospel message to make it easier to proclaim in our culture. But we can't do this. Paul has already told us our job is to guard the gospel, not to change it. That's the very thing that he's warning Timothy against. So what is Timothy to do? How is he to do this? Well, Paul gives us his own example. Run for the crown. Run for the crown. Have a look at verses 5 to 8. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfil your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, and not only me, but also all who have loved his appearing. What he's saying to Timothy is, don't be that guy. Don't be that guy who downplays the gospel, who changes the message. Don't just give people what they want to hear. Keep your head. Endure the jibes. Endure the people who will leave you. Endure the discouragements. Endure the pressure to do something else, to gather a crowd. Preach the gospel. Isn't that what the work of an evangelist is? Train others to do it as well. Evangelists equip the church for works of ministry. That's what we find out in Ephesians 4. Keep preaching the gospel. Even when people want to hear something else. Even when people tell you that the world doesn't want to hear it. They'll say, won't they? Don't tell them to repent and believe. Tell them to recycle. Tell them to save the planet. Tell them to go vegan. Tell them to be nice. Uh, Being nice is enough, isn't it? That's what people want to hear. People will join that church for sure. But Timothy is to fulfil his ministry. He's to preach the word. He's to preach the gospel. To the elect in Ephesus and to the lost souls that are around him. Why is Paul so urgent that Timothy do this? Well, Paul's about to die. Isn't he? He tells you that in verses 6 and 7. He speaks about his life like an Old Testament sacrifice. A drink offering that could either be blood or it could be wine. It alludes to his death. His time to go is now here. And he starts to speak of his life, if you notice, in the past tense. I have fought. I have finished. I have kept. Three images of really what his life has been about. A fight. His life as a gospel minister has not been easy. It's been a struggle. It's been a fight. The word there uh, where he says, I've fought the good fight, the word there is where we get our word agony from or to agonise. 
But he has fought the good fight. He's not fought dirty. He's not fought unnecessarily. He's not talking about a brawl. Yeah, a quick one in a bar. But endurance wrestle. He's finished the fight. He's made it to the end. He's fought the good fight. That's been what his life has been about. Then he uses the picture of a race. An image that we've got repeated all the way through scripture for the Christian life. We've already seen it used in 2 Timothy, haven't we? With the athletes competing. Well, here he says his race is over. He's got to the end. He's made it. And the third image that he uses is a guarding. The word there is literally the word guard where he says kept the faith. It's a slightly different word from the one in chapter 1, but it's the same idea. He has guarded the faith. His own, which he's kept, but also the faith, capital T, capital F. He has done his work of protecting the faith. He has fulfilled the ministry God gave him. And his finishing touch now is preparing Timothy to do the same. And now he's fulfilled his ministry, he awaits the reward. You see that verse 8? Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. A crown of righteousness. He's closer now to the crown than he's ever been. Not the crown of a king, but the crown of a, of a, a victor in athletics. A gold medal of righteousness, if you like. That's probably our image that we'd have for one who finished the race. But before we start thinking this is just for Paul, that he's sort of some sort of special case, like he's going to be the sort of top of the podium, we're told that actually this is prepared for all who finish the race, to all who have loved his appearing. So this crown of righteousness, this medal, is not awarded for the brightest and the best, but for all who make it to the end. The righteousness now imputed to us by faith, one day will be fully ours. We'll have a crown of righteousness. He and we will stand righteous before God, along with our brothers and sisters in the faith. And that sustains Paul in his final days, looking forward Soon his race will be over and he looks forward to the victor's crown. It won't all be for nothing. He will have finished the race. Why is he telling Timothy this? Well, Timothy has more of the track ahead of him to go, hasn't he? He's got that bit further to run than Paul now. He needs to remember this more than Paul almost. You're not running in vain, Timothy. You're running for the victor's crown. Run for the crown, Timothy. Don't turn back. Don't give in. Keep running. Keep going. Keep preaching the gospel. Keep running and come to me soon. That's the last point we've got. Come soon. Have a look. Verse 9 following. Do your best to come to me soon. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia. Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books, and above all the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. At my first defence, no one came to stand by me. But all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. 
But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. The letter seems to finish a bit on a sad note, really. It's like one of those programmes, Where Are They Now? Have you seen one of those where you sort of see child actors or things and what are they doing now? You get aware of they now of people that we've met in Acts and in, in other letters. Demas has left Paul. Seemingly he's turned away from the faith altogether. That seems to be what Paul is suggesting here. Yet Paul called Demas a fellow worker in Philemon. Demas sent his greetings to the Colossians. But now Demas, in love with the world, has turned away. Crescens has gone to Galatia. We don't know who he is, but he's left Paul and we're not told the circumstances. But again, he seems to have deserted Paul in some way. Titus has gone to Dalmatia, that's modern day Croatia. Again, we're not told why. It might be that he's gone on mission there, but he's certainly left Paul behind. He sent Tychicus to Ephesus. Tychicus, if you notice in other New Testament letters, seems to be Paul's courier, his messenger boy. He delivered Ephesians to the Ephesians and Colossians to the Colossians, and he's probably the letter carrier that we've got here. The only one who's remained with Paul is Luke. So there's a tone of of sadness and loneliness here. Whatever the circumstances of their going, it seems like Paul feels abandoned, alone in prison in Rome. He tells Timothy to get him uh, come to to get uh, tells him to come to him soon, and tells him to bring Mark if he can. That's actually a bit of a nice ending if you think about it, because Paul and Barnabas had fallen out over Mark because Paul didn't want Mark with him. But it seems like Mark now has been welcomed back by Paul, and in fact Paul wants him there because he's useful for his ministry. <laughs> and the last, where are they now? Uh, we're, le- we're left with two at the end. One is Alexander, and the other is Paul. And again, these are two paths for Timothy. The last of the sort of two paths. What you're going to do? Is he going to Im- follow in Paul's footsteps, or Alexander? Alexander, we're told, is a coppersmith. Now, there's some dispute as to whether he's the same Alexander that we find elsewhere in the scriptures. But given that he's in Ephesus, it would seem likely that he's the one that we find in Ephesus. Alexander's first appearance was a pretty impressive one. There was a riot in Ephesus instigated by metal workers and people are after Paul's blood. Acts 19.33 it says, Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defence to the crowd. It would make sense, wouldn't it, if Alexander was a metal worker, that he'd be able to talk to the other metal workers about what was happening. He'd be an ideal candidate to stop the riot. And he's put there to defend Paul. He's sticking his neck on the line. He's prepared to suffer if he has to, but he doesn't get the chance. The next time we meet him is in 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy 1, 18 to 20. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made a shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus, mentioned in the last passage, and Alexander, who have handed over to Satan, 
that they may learn not to blaspheme. We have to fill in the gaps a bit here, don't we? Something has happened, and now Alexander is under some form of church discipline. That handing over to Satan seems to be a, the idea of putting them out of the church. Now we see this happen to Alexander. Hymenaeus has swerved from the faith, and something seems to be going on with him. The last time we meet Alexander is here. Now he's openly opposing Paul. It seems as though he either tried to stop Paul preaching the gospel either verbally or physically, or maybe both. In Alexander, we see what Paul fears for Timothy. Once standing firm, now vehemently opposing him. In contrast to this, we get Paul in verse 13, who uh, is virtually alone without his winter cloak. It seems it's probably his winter cloak, that's why he wants him to come before winter. He hasn't got his books which is painful for a minister of the gospel. Yet God is strengthening him. God is standing by him. Even when everyone else is abandoning him, God did not abandon him. And what was God doing here in that passage? He was enabling Paul to preach. To preach the gospel. That's what Paul cares about. That people hear the message. He wasn't concerned for his safety up at the front. He wasn't concerned for his comfort. What matters to Paul was that he got a chance to tell people the gospel. Do you see that? Verse 17. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed. He's not saying, oh yeah, so, so I wouldn't get hit by rocks or, or whatever's going on. What matters to Paul is that he got a chance to preach the gospel. In fact, Paul considers himself to be rescued from the lion's mouth. In that he got to preach the gospel. He kept preaching even in the face of opposition. And he believes that God will keep rescuing him. That sounds a little bit strange, doesn't it? If you think about what this letter is about and what he's just said. Because he knows that he's going to soon be executed. But that's not the rescue that Paul is talking about. Rescue for Paul in verse 18 is staying faithful till the end. Not turning back. Not giving in. Rescued by uh, God for Paul is crossing the finishing line and receiving the crown of glory at the end. So it's not about staying alive. It's about staying a Christian. It's about staying preaching the gospel. And Paul knows that God will do this. Paul recognises that through his whole life, it's not been his own doing. It's not been his own self that's been keeping him going, but God. So God gets the glory. You see that there right at the end to him. Be glory forever and ever. Amen. This is just another part of God's rescue for Paul. So what's the biggest responsibility you've ever been given? Well, here it is. This is the responsibility we've been given by God. To preach and teach his word. To guard the gospel. Do you remember I asked you on the, the first <coughs> session about last words? I wonder what our last words will be. I wonder what others will say about us when they look back at our lives. You know, sort of our obituary in the newspaper. Oh, that they might say that we lived for Jesus and his gospel. That we lived to preach his word. That we lived to make much of Jesus. To our non-Christian friends and also to our Christian friends. 
Let's pray that like Paul, God will keep us going to the end. Keep us preaching and keep us loving the Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we'll thank you for the gift of the gospel. Father, thank you that uh, through the gospel uh, we are made your children, we are made part of your family. Father, thank you that your Holy Spirit dwells in us. So that even if the whole world abandons us, Father, you will never abandon us. Help that to sustain us, Father, in difficult periods. Father, help that to sustain us when people make jives at us or when people turn away from us. Father, pray that in all this we would be rescued from the lion's mouth. Father, that you would keep us going. That you would keep us faithfully preaching the word and not turning aside. Father, we thank you for Paul's example. We thank you for the way that he lived his life wholeheartedly for you. And thank you for Timothy who followed after him, preaching the gospel, guarding the gospel. Oh, Father, that we might be like those, Father, who live their lives for you and for your gospel. That we might see many people hearing the truth and turning to you and being saved. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.